Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogenia Saturdays. Today's program is being pre-recorded for Saturday, June 20th, 2020. Right now it is Wednesday morning, and once again we are, we are here with our friend Toothids to address Charles Weissman's book, What About the Seed-Lying Doctrine? Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. And thank you for listening. Truth is, this is already part 19 of this series. What do you think about that? <laughs> thank yeah, you hey, Bill. Great to be back. Yeah, it's been going really fast. <laughs> it's been a few months, but uh, it's been great. And uh, this week we can finally put the final nail in the coffin, exposing Wiseman's treachery on the first few chapters and give at the end give a little summary to show how he's continuously tried to poison Christian identity, that it's all about obscuring the origins of the Kenites, and to show no link at all with Cain, and then no link at all with the Edomites and the Jews, that he's completely trying to obscure all that. And I would say even that the whole book was written uh, for one purpose, to protect the Jews. What do you think, Bill? Well, well, right, absolutely, to, to um, protect the Jews by preventing people from finding out the true identity of the devil. That, that's exactly what I think. That's what I've always thought. Once I um, was certain that 2C line was true and, and did, I don't know, perhaps close to two years of study when I originally... Um, learned about Christian identity back in the late 1990s. And it took two years to sort through the arguments and, and the, um, the obfuscation that I found in, in the Christian identity books and publications that I first read, because there was a lot of confusion over the, over the, um, over the matter. And it took a, a couple of years to read the Bible, study the scriptures, and, and sort it all out to be certain that two seed line was true. And the part of the reason why it took so long was because of, I didn't read this particular book, but I read books from a lot of people who had these same attitudes that Charles Weissman had and projected a lot of these same concepts that he has. So they did they get it from him, or did he get some of this from them? I don't know, some of these arguments. But this has been going on in, in it went on in British identity circles. And, and now it's in Christian identity circles for these last hundred years. It, it's not easy to root out and, and find a truth about something that's been obfuscated and twisted for a hundred years or actually in this case, for 2,000 years. <laughs> Here we shall finally finish our presentation and discussion of chapter four of Charles Weissman's book, What, what About the Seedline Doctrine, which he had titled The Role of Cain. Doing this, we shall attempt to summarize many of the things which we found throughout our discussions, as Weissman consistently misread passages, 
purposely ignored the context of passages, twisting and even lying about Scripture in his attempts to deny the veracity of two seed line. With our investigation of this one chapter having begun in part nine of this series, so this is the the 12th podcast installment discussing this one chapter. With all of that, we hope to have refuted Weissman comprehensively. In our last presentation, where we had left off where Weissman mischaracterized the relationship of Kenites with Israel at the time of King Saul, where he said the Kenites were friendly to the Israelites. There we had shown that from the time of Balaam, when he prophesied about the Kenites in Numbers chapter 24, to the time of Saul, the first king of Israel, a period of nearly 450 years, there was only one mention of a single Kenite, and that referred to Heber, who was a Midianite smith in the days of Deborah and Barak, perhaps 400 years before the time of Saul. The Kenites not being mentioned again until Saul warned them to depart from Amalek for, for some unknown reason. We see that Weissman had no basis for that statement. How does he say that? The Kenites were friendly to the Israelites when the Kenites were not mentioned for 400 years up to that point. I thought maybe you could tell us how he could say that, because I can't figure it out. <laughs> well, he's just making it up, isn't he? <laughs> exactly. He just made it up. He just wanted to sound like, he just wanted it to sound like these Kenites were different Kenites and that they were in Palestine with the Israelites getting along just fine. That's what he wanted to make it sound like. Like it was some kind of wholesome relationship that had been ongoing for all those years. There's not one mention of them. And, 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 and Eber wasn't a Kenite by race. He was clearly a Midianite by race. Now we are in the third to last paragraph of Weissman's chapter. I really thought we'd finish this last week, but then I thought the program would go too long if, I, if we had tried to. So here we are in the third to last paragraph. And as he continues, Weissman attempts to deny any connection between Cain and the Kenites, claiming that the name only belonged to people from a particular city, a city which had almost certainly never even existed, as we hope to prove here. So Weissman claims, and this is the end of the third to last paragraph, the Kenites of Canaan derive their name from the name of a place called Cain, not from the descent of some man, it seems none of the authorities even suggest that either people are descended from Cain of Genesis chapter 4. Now, I don't 
really know why he said either people, right? But that's what he said. Maybe he's double-minded, thinking he was talking about two people instead of one. <laughs> For some strange reason. First, where Weissman says none of the authorities even suggest, that is not really true. In spite of the fact that so many Bible commentaries and dictionaries only further confuse the manner. In the original Strong's Hebrew lexicon, under the entry for the word for Cain, number 7014, it says in part, Cain, and he spells it K-A-J-I-N, which should be pronounced K-N, like two syllables. K-N, the name of the first child. Also, the first child born in the Bible, I gather. Also of a place in Palestine and of an Oriental tribe. As we shall explain, that place in Palestine apparently never existed by that name. Then, under the entry for the word Kenite, number 7017, we read patronym from 7014. That's a direct connection claiming that the Kenites were named after a figure, a person, patronym, a patriarch named Cain. That's what Strong's insinuates just by writing that, that is the definite implication that Kenites came from someone named Cain. <laughs> Patronym from 7014, a Kenite or member of the tribe of Cain, of Cain. And Strong's makes a very strong suggestion in those definitions that the Kenites were descended from Cain. Does Strong's actually spell it that way, Kajin, or or has uh, Wiseman done that deliberately? No, no, no. That's my quotation from Strong's Concordance. That's me. Oh, that's okay. my comments. That's my comments from Strong's Concordance refuting Weissman. Strong did spell it that way because the the, the um, Hebrew form of Cain isn't yeah. You know, Hebrew had consonantal vowels. They were, they, they were consonants that could function as vowels, but it had no proper vowels. So the, um, the, the form of the name Cain is three letters, three of those consonants. Um, one of them is a consonantal vowel. That's the Yod which we often transliterate as our letter Y. So the modern Strong's transliterates it Q-A-Y-I-N. And Strong's chose to transliterate it K-A-J-I-N. But understanding that the J, um, if, if you look at the German language, the modern German language, the J letter is really a, um, originally it was the same as the I letter. They weren't, printers didn't even create the letter J 
until the 15th or 16th centuries, I believe. The J letter functions as a Y when it's an what when it's at the beginning of a syllable and is followed by a vowel. Now today, because of the French influence on the English language, where the Germans didn't have that so much, we pronounce the J differently. <clears throat> and I believe that's because of the French influence on English. So the Spanish pronounce that letter like an H, as we would an H, that they're completely on a different track, I, I gather. So it's K-in would be proper. But in English, we have um, what we have elided that, and, and, and now it's just Cain. And that's how it was in right from the 1611 King James Bible. That middle consonant, that consonantal vowel was dropped. <coughs> I'm sorry, from the English transliteration. So, Strong's makes a very strong suggestion in those definitions that Kenites were descended from Cain. And we had explained in our discussion of Numbers chapter 24, where Cain is mentioned, and this is just in our last presentation last week, which is where the King James Version translated the word for Cain as Kenite. We explained that if in the words of Balaam, the mention of Jacob was a reference to Israelites, and the mention of Amalek was a reference to Amalekites, because by that time, Jacob and Amalek themselves were long dead, right? And if the mention of Asher was a reference to the Assyrians, because Asher was also long dead, then the mention of Cain must have been a reference to Kenites, to the tribe. If Jacob, Amalek, and Asher were individual men and the patriarchs of tribes found in Genesis, then in Balaam's allegory, recorded in Numbers chapter 24, Cain also had to be a, a man and the patriarch of a tribe in Genesis, just like the other three. In Balaam's account, it certainly was not a city in Judah as Balaam was in Moab when he spoke those words. This is further certain since in Numbers chapter 24, verse 22, where he said, and he looked on the Kenites, the tribal name for Kenite, number 7017, was used. But where he said, the Kenite shall be wasted, he used the name of their patriarch, Cain, 7014. Likewise, where the reference to the Kenites is found in Genesis chapter 15, the nine other people groups mentioned along with them are names of tribes and not merely names of cities. 
so Kenites there must also be a tribe and not merely inhabitants of a single particular city, as Weissman claims here. But even the existence of this so-called place called Cain is highly dubious. There is a town named Cain mentioned only one time in scripture, where it is found only in the Masoretic text, where it is listed among the cities, towns, and villages of the inheritance of Judah, in the south of Judah, in Joshua chapter 15, verse 57. But the name does not appear in the Septuagint version, and it is not found anywhere else. In the Latin Vulgate, it is Achaim, A-C-C-A-I-M, in Latin, which was incorrectly transliterated as Achaian, A-C-C-A-I-N, in the Douay Reims translation, as if they tried to force it to appear closer to the version of the Jews. Strong, following the Masoretic text, included it a place in Palestine under the entry for Cain. But that does not mean that it actually existed. In Joshua 15:57, it is seemingly wanting in the Septuagint and in the later Latin text of the Vulgate, it is Achaim. It's a totally different word, even though there's a small similarity. And each of those versions are far older than the earliest copies of the Masoretic text. But there is a caveat where we must elucidate a confusion in the early manuscripts. In the King James Version, the last town listed in Joshua 1556 is Zanoah. But in some manuscripts of the Septuagint, it is spelled Zakanaim, while in others it is Zanoakim. From this, we may infer that two distinct names may have been confounded in the transliteration from Hebrew to the Greek of the Septuagint. And that accounts for that, noticing that accounts for and corroborates the reading of the Vulgate. Once we realize that those two words, Zenoah and Achaim, were elided by the Greek writers into one word, Zanoakim, then we see the reason for the Vulgate having that town Achaim, where the Septuagint has nothing because it stuck the, the two names together, Zanoa and Achaim. In any event, the name of the confounded city is not Cain. It seems that Zanoakim, as the Codex Alexandrinus has it, 
may have certainly been compounded from Zanoa and Akim, the Akim of the Vulgate. Furthermore, if a city named Cain did exist in the south of Judah, which is highly unlikely, if it were so notable a city that it was the subject of one of Balaam's prophecies, one may imagine that it would be mentioned more than once in the Masoretic text. But after that single passage, it is not mentioned again, even in places where the surrounding towns are mentioned. Why would Balaam even single out such a city when attempting to prophesy against Israel far away in the plains of Moab? The truth is that the city did not exist. And Balaam was speaking of a tribe, which at that time was east of the Jordan, as they were also found 450 years later in the days of King Saul. So that would fit the descendants of Cain never having their own city or civilization, that they would always be vagabonds roaming from place to place, living off the other Adamic races, infiltrating, and that's how they would survive. They wouldn't build farms or civilizations. They would instead be merchants and traders and, you know, today lawyers and bankers. Well, absolutely. And, and what we have is glosses in the Masoretic text to try to convince us somehow that the Kenites had cities. But when you look at the Septuagint, you, you don't see it. And we will show that even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, we can prove our point that the Septuagint readings are the more correct readings in these instances. The, as you said, the Kenites were wanderers, vagabonds. They didn't have cities, and, and that was their sentence put upon Cain. Well, once you realize in the Old Testament that these passages are glosses and the Kenites really didn't have cities, you'll see that these are the Kenites that of, of um, Genesis chapter 4 that were under that curse of Cain to be wanderers. And it's amazing that, was it 7,000 years or seven and a half? To this day, that curse is still lived up, except, of course, for this artificial uh, state of Israel. They've never had a civilization for, for so long. The, the curse is absolutely true. Right. They have never... Um developed and built their own nation apart from every other nation. And, and the children of Israel in scripture were told again and again that they would be blessed, they would become a great nation, they would become a company of nations, that they, they would have all of these um, marvelous traits and, and civilization, and they would possess the gates of their enemies and do all these wonderful things and build kingdoms all over the world. That's what they're being told back there in, in, in the prophecies in, in Genesis and the books of the prophets. 
But the Jews have never done any of that. They've never built anything. They have always been nomadic wanderers, and, and they've always suffered curses that prevented them from doing those things. So who were the Jews? And, and the Arabs as well. Everything that's built and everything that, that is um, civilized all throughout the Arab nations to this day has been built by and, and developed by Europeans. To this day, the Arab nations employ German contracting form, firms, German architects, German contractors, German builders to come and build things in Arab lands. Everything built of note in Arab lands has been built by Germans or, or by other Westerners, never by the Arabs themselves. Would we have a, a um, would we have a, a Suez Canal if we had to wait for the Egyptians to build it? If the British didn't do it, of course not. That there is, but we had these. Um, we we spoke about um, these Zuzims in Genesis chapter fourteen, and these Zuzims are unidentified. Their origin is unidentified in Scripture, and they're mentioned in Genesis chapter fourteen. And even the modern Strong's lexicon, not only the original translate Zuzim as roving creatures, an ancient people of uncertain origin. So they're roving creatures. What we had um, branches of these people that weren't identified as Kenites, but where did they come from? And they had the same traits as Jews and gypsies. So... And they're among the cursed people and, and of, of Palestine. And they were eventually destroyed, we, we would hope, or at least for the most part, run out. So this, this curse upon Cain and, and the conditions of the Kenites, once we clear up these questions, these certain passages that, that in the Masoretic text try to show that Kenites had cities, which just isn't true, we learn that, that these, today's Jews, still have those same traits. So furthermore, as we had also discussed in our last presentation, there is a reference to cities of the Kenites in 1 Samuel chapter 30 in verse 29. So if we were to accept this passage, as it appears in a Masoretic text, that would not prove, right, Weiss, prove Weissman to be correct. That would prove Weissman to be wrong, as it shows that Kenites had at least several cities, and therefore they did not have that name from being the inhabitants of a single city. So if we want to abide by the King James Version and the Masoretic Text and accept these verses for what the King James Version says, then Weissman is still wrong. However, we cannot accept the reading of that passage in the Masoretic text. In 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 
chapter 30, verse 29. The phrase is not cities of the Kenites. It is cities of the Kenizzites in both the Septuagint and in the Hebrew of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But while Joshua chapter 15 evidently did not survive in the scrolls, these other sources still help to bring the readings of the Masoretic text of that passage into question. It cannot be established that there was any place named Cain in Palestine or that the Kenites had any cities of their own, and especially one famous enough to give its name to a particular people. Weissman is grasping at straws. If you, um, how many cities are there in Britain, and how many people are named after those cities, and retain that name when they leave that city? If you move from London, if you live in London, you could call yourself a Londoner, right, I guess. But if you move to York, are you still a Londoner or are you really just an Englishman? I'm asking. I don't know how they do things over there. <laughs> um, I'm not sure because the there's so many accents in England. You can usually pick it up straight away and, and you, you know, you have a, a Geordie or a Northerner or you know, someone from Liverpool or from Cornwall, you can pick it up straight away. Um, but yeah, usually you, you just say, oh, I'm de from down south or from up north. You know, that's usually how it would go. Well, right. I mean, the name of the city doesn't follow you for the rest of your life after you leave that city if you're still among people of your own race and nation. And, or, or yeah, Exactly. If there's an alien, um, well, there are, right? There, there are, look at all these Pakis, these East Asian, East Asian people, I think you call them, who, who are living in, in um, London. When they pick up and, and move to another city, they certainly aren't called Londoners because they lived in London. I, I mean, city names just don't stay with races of people. When they live in another no. place. We call them uh, Pakis and dot, dot heads, you know, Indians and Pakistanis. Well, well, if this is the, right, dot heads. If this is the best Weissman can do, is claim that these Kenites existed and they weren't in the city of Cain. Every time they're mentioned in scripture, they're somewhere other than this city called Cain. So even if this city called Cain existed, if this is the best Weissman can do, it falls apart. It doesn't hold up. These Kenites are never in that city called Cain. It's, it doesn't say that once. Every time we encounter the Kenites, they're on the other side of the Jordan River in the scripture. They're not in the south of Judah. They're with Amalek. They're, they're somewhere else. <laughs> This is um, what Weissman's claim is absurd. He's grasping at straws. It, he has to find some reason to identify these Kenites as anything but the descendants of Cain. <laughs> so his penultimate paragraph, the second to last, 
paragraph in Weissman's chapter. Some of Cain's descendants were quite prominent individuals of their times. Jabal was the father of such as dwell in tents. And that's not really complete because it goes on to say, and who have cattle. And that's the important part of that passage, that they, um, that they were attempting to engage in husbandry. Because back then, um, you did what you had to do. Otherwise, you wouldn't survive at all. Jabal was the father of such as dwell in tents and who had cattle. Jubal was the father of all such as handle the harp and the organ. Tubalcane was an instructor of every artificer in brass and iron, but he didn't catch on to the significance of that. Weissman says, this would seem to indicate that Cain's descendants were well-established in the earth, making it more likely that Cain's bloodline could have survived to modern times. Well, of course it did, because otherwise the prophecy of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15 would never come true. <clears throat> this is why we claim that Smiths could be named for Kenites, since a notable Kenite was a teacher of Smiths. So here, while Weissman seems to support our position, perhaps he is implying that they should still be known as Kenites. How many people in white nations today are known collectively by names which they had 4,000 years ago, or even 400 years ago? The truth is that they did survive, but under a host of other names and in the blood of all the peoples with whom they mingled throughout history, including the blood of Charles Weissman. I have no doubt. But they're never going to um, admit that bloodline. They will always uh, adopt a new name for their race wherever they go to hide and obscure to protect themselves. Because if, if they admitted that they were sons of Cain, they would be driven out. Absolutely, that they would have been rejected, that they would have been all throughout history, they would have been rejected. When the Cetrogen became popular and people had access to scripture that didn't speak Hebrew, they would have had to change their name. They would have been forced to. Who would want to be identified as somebody cursed from scripture? And the Edomites were more than happy to change their name and that's right in the histories of Josephus and, and become known as Jews, as Judeans. They were more than happy to do that so they could stay in the land. Today we have um, Native Americans who identify themselves as Native Americans. That means that they've come to accept the fact that this place is now called America because white people named it America. So just by calling themselves Native Americans, they consign themselves to the fact that the place is called America, where if they really cared about their, their original heritage, they would never call themselves Americans. They would never describe themselves that way. That's a white man's description for them. But they'll check the box on the census form, Native American, 
Native American. They'll accept that designation. So the Edomians of the second century BC were glad to be called Judeans as long as they could stay where they lived. They even submitted to circumcision and started following the, the laws that were alien to them and adopted them and took them as their own. So we certainly can't expect Kenites today to be called Kenites or Kenites 2,500 years ago to be called Kenites. They blended in with other people and, and assumed different identities. What would, if, if, if you could pull a um, dead prairie nigger out of the ground, if you could revive a 500-year-old Native American and he saw the way today's Native Americans identify themselves. Well, well, if he could hear them, he'd be rolling over in his grave, right? The proverbial um, rejection of what has come to be. We, they we weren't have, even um, a united people, were they? They were just tribes all over the place. Yeah, they were just tribes all over the place. But they had their own distinct identity, sense of identity, and if they were really concerned for their own heritage, they would insist on maintaining that distinct identity. Yeah, they'd want to be called the tribe of whatever, whatever name they had. Yeah, Cherokee or Sioux. They would never call themselves Native Americans. That makes them the same as, as their rival tribes. <laughs> it, it, it destroys their original identity. And, and that's my point, that people have um, succumbed to these identity changes all throughout history. My own ancestors came here, and after a generation or two, they were no longer Germans, they were Americans, or they were no longer English, they were Americans. Let's read from Genesis chapter 15. The Kenites, and the Kenizzites, and the Cadmonites, and the Hittites, and the Perizzites, and the Rephames, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Girgashites, and the Jebusites, the ten nations of the land of Canaan. Out of these peoples, the Hittites, the Rephames, the Amorites, and the Canaanites are all identi identifiable people groups with their own common ancestry which is the definition of a tribe or, on a larger scale, a nation. But some of these tribes had ambiguous origins. So modern lexicographers seek other means by which they may have acquired their names. So for parasites, some dictionaries have villagers. And for Cadmonites, some dictionaries have Easterners. But even Strong, in his original lexicon, where he did not know the origins of some of these people, at least understood their names to be patronyms, as in the case of Girgashites, Jebusites, and Kenizzites. Patronyms, or the names of tribes, as in his definitions for Cadmonites and Perizzites. So even Strong believed that Girgashites, Jebusites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, and Perizzites were named after patriarchs, after their own patriarchs, 
in his definitions, where he has that those names signified as patronyms. Now, this leaves us with Kenites. And Strong also understood that to be a reference to a tribe originating from Cain. Of these 10 names, if four or five or six of them are names of tribes, it makes no sense that any of the others are names of occupations or describe a people living in villages or in some particular city or region in circumstances and in places that were shared by all 10 of them. They must have all been names of tribes. And that we see more clearly where most of them seven of them are mentioned once again in Deuteronomy chapter 7, where Moses is speaking of things to come. And he says, when Yahweh thy God shall bring thee into the land, whither thou goest to possess it, and has cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Girgashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, Seven nations greater and mightier than now. So, Perizzites are a nation and not merely villagers, as the lexicons have. And each of these others are also nations. So here we see that not only are the Hittites, Rephaims, Amorites, and Canaanites tribes or nations of people, as we can discern from earlier scriptures, but also the Gershites, Perizzites, and Jebusites, who were mentioned earlier in Genesis chapter 15. Since they are described as nations here, they were nations in Genesis chapter 15. And if they are nations or tribes of people, then in that same context, so also must be the Kenites, Kenizzites, and Cadmonites who were not mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7. In the context of Genesis chapter 15, the term Kenite must refer to a tribe, and it is doubtful that there ever was any city named Cain. None of these other tribes were named after a city. So Moses went to great length to try and identify all these enemy tribes. That's what they were, to identify the enemy for younger generations so they would know not to mix with them. Absolutely. And just because Kenites, Kenizzites, and Cadmonites aren't mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 7 doesn't mean that they no longer existed because in other contexts, they are mentioned later than that, later than Deuteronomy chapter 7. So finally, we have reached the final paragraph of this fourth chapter of Weissman's book. The question of whether the Jews today can be called Cainites comes down to whether or not Cain's blood survived to present times. If Cain's lineage did survive, then it is likely that Jews, or at least some Jews, have Cainite blood. 
this being because Jews are such a mixed people. And Weissman, that, that's candid of him. He honestly made that statement. But it's true. It, it can't be denied. But how did he say that they were pure Israelites back at the time of Christ is beyond me. His final sentence, seed line advocates, however, present very little to show a connection between Cain and modern day Jews. Wow, this is funny and, and it's pitiful. Yahshua Christ himself, as well as the entire Old Testament, has shown us the connection between Kenites and modern-day Jews. But Weissman has denied it all along while making lies and creating emotional arguments against every single proof. In Genesis chapter 4, we see the descendants of Cain were listed. Moses didn't do that for nothing. He wanted to show that Cain had many generations of descendants before the flood. In Genesis chapter 14, we see Rephaim, the giants, and other people who have no listing in the genealogies of Genesis chapter 10. So it cannot be said that they came from Noah. Then, in Genesis chapter 15, those other people are the Zuzims, the roving creatures of Genesis chapter 14, right? Then in Genesis chapter 15, we see Kenites, Rephaim, and three other tribes with obscure origins who were listed along with five tribes of the Canaanites, because five of those tribes are all um, Canaanites or sections, branches of the Canaanites who were notable enough to be called after their own names, like the Hittites. It was customary among all of these, all of these Canaanite tribes, as we have shown, to intermarry with their neighbors for the sake of peace and to facilitate trade. Later, Esau took Canaanite wives, and therefore it is highly probable that in his descendants runs the blood of both Cain and the Rephaim, as well as those other identif unidentifiable tribes with whom the Canaanites had been living among and mixing in with. Later, Judah took a wife of the Canaanites, and the resulting tribe of Shelah were of the same nature as the sons of Esau. So in Jeremiah, we see the population of Jerusalem divided into good figs and bad figs. And while some of Judah were good figs and would be preserved, others would be turned over to the bad figs for their punishment. That was fulfilled in the period leading up to the New Testament. Later, in Ezekiel chapter 35, we see a prophecy that the Edomites would move into Judah and Israel to take the land for themselves. And they did which facilitated the fulfillment of the prophecy of the good and bad figs. Then in the books of Nehemiah and Ezra, we see that already the remnant which returned to Jerusalem from captivity had begun to intermarry with them and with others. Even after Ezra had resolved the situation, 
It was further prophesied in Malachi that it would happen again, and it did in the two centuries leading up to the time of Christ. We know from the accounts of Flavius Josephus that all of the Edomites and other Canaanites of Judea were converted into Judaism by the time when the Romans turned Judea over as a kingdom into the hands of Herod the Edomite. That's corroborated. Yeah, so if there'd been no uh, Edomites, it would have been completely different when Christ came. Right. Everyone Absolutely. would have accepted him. Because his sheep hear his voice. But they mingled themselves with the Edomites, and the wolves and the tares don't hear his voice. He told them, you do not believe me because you are not my sheep. I don't know how Weissman missed that one. We need John chapter 10 in order to understand what was going on in John chapter 8 because he said, you believe me not because you were not my sheep. I only quoted half the verse. He went on to say, as I had said unto you. When did he say that unto them? Back in John chapter 8 because the events in John chapter 10 are only a short time after the events in John chapter 8, and he was disputing with basically the same group of people. So when did he say it unto them? Back in John chapter 8, and they understood what he was saying to them in John chapter 8 when they protested that they weren't born of fornication, but Christ was telling them that they were born of fornication because they weren't Israelites. So Paul basically says later in Hebrews that if you don't accept chastisement, you're a bastard and not a son. They didn't accept chastisement because they were bastards and not sons. Because they were descended from these converted Edomites that Herod started appointing into the priesthood. So where Paul of Tarsus described the reasons for the divisions among the Judeans in his own time. He attributed it, if you read Romans chapter 9, he attributed it to the fact that the nation consisted of both Israelites, who were vessels of mercy, and Edomites, who were vessels of destruction. When Christ was confronted by his adversaries, he explained to them that they were Edomites and descendants of Cain. We have belabored our explanations of these passages throughout our address of Weissman's book, and we have refuted Weissman's refutations. Doing this, we have offered many other passages from Jeremiah, from Daniel, from the other apostles, and from the historic books of the Bible. Here is one more from the apocryphal book known as Susanna, which we believe certainly should be a part of Daniel. It should be Daniel chapter 1. When Daniel had proven that two Jews who falsely accused a woman, when he had proven that, when he had proved they were lying, and he said to them, O thou seed of Canaan, and not of Judah. Beauty has deceived thee, and lust has perverted thy heart. Just like Christ and his apostles, Daniel understood the false accusers and 
infiltrators into the body of Israel to be Canaanites and not Israelites. Charles Weissman belongs in that same category. Those of whom the Apostle Jude had said, for there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. As we have shown here frequently, Weissman did indeed do that very same thing. Weissman denied Christ. He you can see Christ. why that book was removed. It's so clear that Daniel's showing that these descendants of Cain infiltrate and pretend to be people who they aren't, especially Judah or the Israelites. And, and that book just had to be removed. Right. Absolutely. Why was it removed? I know that they claim that no part of it was written, was found in Hebrew. That's their first claim. And, and then they claim that it has, just like they defraud the wisdom of Solomon, they claim it has Hellenistic language. So it really didn't, couldn't have been as old as Daniel. And, and that's all sophistry. That, that's, that, that's plain lies. And anybody that thinks that the Jews aren't, that, that the Jews are above destroying portions of scripture should take a good look at the history of the Dead Sea Scrolls and everything that's disappeared out of those, or the Aleppo Codex, that portions of the Aleppo Codex had just disappeared in 1947, never to be seen again, when it was known to be a complete copy of scripture from the 10th century. When the Jews took control of portions of, of, where, of the land where the Aleppo Codex was what was stored, was preserved, parts of it just disappeared when Palestine became a legitimate state or was about to be recognized. Parts of the Aleppo Codex just, poof, gone. Why would that happen under the Jews' watch? I don't know the, the, all of the details of the story, but I don't think anybody does know the details of why portions of the Aleppo Codex disappeared. Just like John Strugnell, a Roman Catholic scholar and a Harvard professor, he, he's um, not a man whose word should be taken lightly. He said that a complete Aramaic copy of the Book of Enoch disappeared from the Dead Sea Scrolls. And he made some other remarks that were interpreted by Jews to be anti-Semitic, and they destroyed him. They ruined his career. And they was always behind the push to remove Bibles from schools and everything. So, so they're completely against the Bible. Oh, yeah. They don't want anybody reading the Bible. To them, if you read the Talmud, to them, any um, Gentile reading any of their scriptures is, a, is a, um, a huge offense to them. They think that you should be killed for that. And that's what it says in the Talmud, that you should be killed for that. It's incredible that they're, um, they're treachery against God. That's evident in the book of Acts. I, I thought it might be fitting to have a, a rundown on some of Weissman's major lies 
from chapters three and four of his book, it's taken us so long to um, discuss these two chapters. So yesterday I picked out some of what I thought were the high points. I, I mean, I don't, you might have others, I don't know, but. Yeah, one thing um, I forgot to say from earlier where um, Wiseman admitted that a lot of Jews were mixed, that alone should show that, that they have a natural evil origin, that they're contrary to God. And Wiseman never mentioned anything about that. Right. Um, if the Jews really cared about their racial purity, why aren't they homogenous? Why, why do some Jews and, and that these Ashkenazi Jews, which really to them means German Jews, look just like or very close to what the typical Western European looks like. And some Jews look just like the typical dark-skinned, greasy-haired Arab. And, and they could walk right into an Arab wedding and never be noticed. Or Arabs do it all the time. They walk right into Jewish weddings and they're never noticed. They're indistinguishable from Arabs because they're just as mixed as Arabs are. They're not a peculiar people. They've never cared about their race. The mother, if the mother's a Jew, you're a Jew. It doesn't matter who the father is. If your mother's a Jew, you're in. Your father could be Bubba or Sancho. They don't care. They never cared about their racial purity. They never cared to maintain themselves as a distinct people. They've always mixed with others. Everywhere they've gone. That's the first thing they do is start mixing. And that's the, the nature of the ancient Canaanites. If you're going to live in our land, then you're going to take our daughters for wives, and we're going to take your sons for, for husbands for our daughters, and we're going to have peace and prosperity together. And, and that's the Jewish attitude and the Jewish mentality to this very day. It's never, ever changed. It's the mentality of ancient Canaan. And, and look at their tendency towards pornography and prostitution and, and um, all of these sexual sins of ancient Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodomy is the Jews are the purveyors of sodomy throughout the world today. Tel Aviv right now is bragged about as being the gayest city in the world. And if I had to guess, I would bet New York City is second. And that has an extremely large concentration of Jews. So if the Jews were Israelites, they would be creating the kingdom of heaven wherever they went. They would be turning the deserts into beautiful gardens, as the scripture promises. But if the Jews are devils, if they're Canaanites and Zuzims, roving creatures, and if they are the same people that created Sodom and Gomorrah 4,000 years ago, then they recreate Sodom and Gomorrah everywhere they go. And that's what they do today. That's exactly what they do today. Right now, they're recreating Sodom and Gomorrah worldwide. 
where men can marry beasts, where men can marry men, where women can marry horses, where pedophilia is considered normal, where sodomy is just an everyday occurrence and, and it's natural and nobody should have any concerns about it. That's the world they've created today. Yeah, and they cover up a lot of all the um, abominations that go on in Israel. You know, if you ask them, they would say it's um, all normal marriages, good Jews. They all live family lives, but, but it's a complete lie. Absolutely. And Charles Weissman, this is what Charles Weissman is covering for when he tries to obscure the true identity of the Jew. He's trying to obscure the true reason for their sinful behavior and, and their wicked behavior and, and the, their, how, how about their belief that they could wave a chicken over their head to pass the sins to the chicken? Where, <laughs> Where does, does that, that come, even come from? from? Where is that in the Bible? The Orthodox Jews in New York do it every year. They have a huge festival once a year. They have tractor trailer full, loads of chickens, live chickens brought in. And they, they wave them over their heads and pass the sins to the chicken. And, and I don't know what happens after that. Maybe they fry them up and sell them to niggers. I don't know what happens to the chickens after that. But the Jews consider the chicken cursed, so the Jews don't eat it. <laughs> They're not going to eat it. It's cursed. Probably put it in KFC, I think. Yeah, I would bet. Going back to chapter two of his book, Weissman claimed repeatedly that all the power of Satan was eliminated at the cross of Christ. And that's refuted by the words of Paul and the other apostles. It's refuted by Christ in the Revelation. Weissman stated that the serpent represented fleshly nature, which is also refuted. The serpent is a particular genetic line of wicked people. He lied about the definition of nakash and terms such as touch and eat. Then in chapter three, Weissman agreed, as we, he agreed with us that the serpent was a person and had an agenda different from that of God. You know, a man could pursue fleshly nature, but that doesn't mean he's a serpent. And a serpent can pursue godly nature. The, the serpents and vipers of, of the time of Christ were pretending to be godly men and claiming to uphold the law of Moses. They had every appearance of being holy and pious and just. Yet Christ called them serpents. So they weren't serpents based on how they behaved. Yeah, the difference is that we can be tricked and fooled, that um, a Jew can just pretend to be good and convert. But in the eyes of God, he can see through all the lies and look into their heart and know exactly what their intentions are. Absolutely. In chapter three, Weissman offered an explanation, a corrupted explanation of our perception of the word Satan and devil without making any citations in order to support them. He offered his own made up definitions. 
he failed to understand the difference between common adjectives and substantives, which are used as proper nouns. He also failed to offer sufficient scripture or historical background in order to understand the context in which the words were used. Weissman also steadfastly refused to connect the fallen angels of Revelation 12 to the serpent of Genesis chapter 3, even though the revelation makes that connection explicitly. And he failed to connect them to the tree which the serpent represented. He failed to connect that to that race of people. And instead he claimed that we cannot know or it cannot conclusively be said. Even postulating that a serp the serpent is a reptile in order to cloud the arguments. Yeah, the um, Satan and devil, that I've seen that so many times, the bait and switch, where they say, um, you know, Peter, get behind me, Satan, and then they switch it with devil and say, see, there's good, anyone can be a devil. Right. Anyone can be an adversary if they disagree with you. Peter disagreed with Christ, so he was an adversary. He was acting as an adversary because Christ was telling him what had to happen because it was written that it would happen. Peter was attempting to oppose that. So when you oppose the word of God, you make yourself a Satan, an adversary. But that doesn't mean that you're the Satan the satanic entity of these wicked people of Revelation chapter 12 and Genesis chapter 3. That's a totally different phenomenon than simple opposition to God. I think a defining moment in our estimation of Charles Weissman appeared on page 21 of his book, where he said, and I quote, the term devil or Satan, I'm sorry, the term Satan or devil was not known to the early Hebrews, nor does it occur in the early books of the Bible. Evidently, these terms were used later when the Israelites came in contact with the people who believed in two gods, the God of good and the God of evil. The Babylonians and the Persians accepted the doctrine of dualism with two powers, good and evil. That exposes much more about Charles Weissman than any of his other arguments. Because basically, Weissman is admitting that we should not take seriously the New Testament writers, or even the writers of later scriptures, such as the minor prophets Malachi and Zechariah, Weissman is claiming that these writers were following pagan traditions rather than the word of God and rather than having been inspired by God. That is chutzpah. That is bold to say that Jesus and the apostles and these later writers were only following the doctrines of Babylonian and Persian dualism. That's incredible to me. He's denying the veracity of Scripture. He's denying that the Scripture is truthful. Instead, it's just um, adopting these pagan concepts 
Jesus is and if you're wild. as wise as him, you can figure it all out and come up with a new doctrine. Right. Jesus is just following the Babylonians and Persians. He's not really telling the truth. So Weissman had the mind of a Jew and not of a Christian. To me, a Jewish mind might believe that, might make that postulation. Not a Christian mind. But even there, he is wrong. Even there, he is lying. Because we showed that Hebrew words equivalent in meaning to the Greek words for demon and devil or satyr did indeed exist and were used in the oldest books of the Old Testament, which are the books written by Moses. We also showed that where Satan appears in the book of Job, that work was written before the time of David. That works from the judges' period. So it is also of great antiquity. Long before Weissman could claim any connection with Babylonians and Persians. So Weissman not only thinks like a Jew, he lies like a Jew. The attitude he projected on that one page should discredit him permanently and entirely. I couldn't believe he said that. Yeah, it just shows he's not Christian at all. And you wonder, well, why is he in Christian identity then? Right. If you believe that Jesus was only following along with the pagans and, and that all of the um, what we uphold to be Christian truth was really only things that Jesus and the apostles borrowed from Babylonian and Persian dualism, that's what he said. That's incredible. And also, um, he, he, you know, I said it before, he never goes into Revelation, you know, one of the most important texts. Uh, any of the epistles like Jude or Peter discussing the fallen angels and the beasts that will be destroyed. You, you'd think he'd be, you know, wanting to go into all of these to prove all his points. I don't think he uses them. I don't think he reads them. He picked out a couple of words here and there. He did. He picked out maybe half a dozen phrases and tried to use them to prove his points. But you could find them in, in three seconds with the concordance. I don't think he's really familiar with any of the Christian literature in the New Testament. Except for where he tries to refute 2C line. That's the impression I get from reading this in, entire book. It's incredible that he essentially, he denies Christ there by claiming that Christ was only following along with Babylonian and Persian dualism, which is the certainly the accusation that he's making. Then Weissman asserted that we believe in a second God. Well, he must believe Christ believed in a second God, right? If, if Christ was only following dualism, and he said that. Weissman asserted that we believe in a second God which caused evil in the world, but that is not true, and it has never been true. Rather, we see Satan as a collective entity, which is forever opposed to God. Those men, if we must call them men, who are wicked by nature and the circumstances of their own origin, for which they can never be reconciled to God, because a bastard can never be reconciled to God. It's not something that God created. That is the Satan and devil of whom Christ and the apostles had spoken.
Additionally, there were demons, which we find in Old and New Testaments, which are spiritual entities opposed to God, but they themselves are not gods. It clearly says in the Old Testament on two occasions that we cited earlier in this earlier in this um, series that the children of Israel had sacrificed unto devils, and that word is Strong's number 7700. It's shade, shed or shade, and it's a demon. It's a demon spirit. That's what it means. A shed in Hebrew is basically what we might call a ghost or, or a spirit devil. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 32. So that's Moses. It's also in Psalm 106, verse 37. And that's probably a Psalm of David. I'm not entirely sure. Basically, their ancestors, the ancestors of all these other races. Right. The Enoch, the Enoch literature describes demons as the spirits of bastards. And whether or not you want to believe that spiritual entities exist, I don't care, even though the New Testament insists that we should believe that. These other races were holding up as gods their own deceased ancestors. And Paul of Tarsus tells us that these fallen angels were the source of paganism. Paul of Tarsus tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that basically the worship of pagans, the worship of these idols, is the worshiping or the hum humiliation of worshiping angels. There are many other scriptures, and there are ancient inscriptions external to scripture, which lead us to believe that these Nephilim, these fallen angels, wanted to be worshipped as gods, and that their descendants did indeed worship them as gods. And that is where the ancient pagan pantheons come from. So, doing that, worshipping these pagan gods, we are worshipping devils. And that's corroborated in Paul's epistles in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, where Paul said that the things that the nations, meaning the pagan nations of Europe, that the things which the nations sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. So pagan worship is, as you said, the worship of the dead ancestors of these races of people who were not created by God. And all of the branches of the various Adamic tribes had, as the scripture tells us, gone off after these other races and worshiped their gods. And we're doing it today. We could see it today that we're doing the same thing. We're following the same patterns, except that today it's more sophisticated because we have electronic media 
and, and a million distractions instead of just Baal or Apollo or Zeus or, or whatever. Saturn. Or they're really cunning, the, the apostles, right? Or the... Oh, my mind's gone blank. What would they have it? The patron patron saint of this country or or this city or whatever. Well, right. The Catholic, the Roman Catholic Church has pagan roots. All of its original priests were converted pagans. They weren't converted because they loved Jesus. They were converted because they loved their position. They loved their their, their soft, easy living as priests. And, and the status they had as priests, that's why they converted. So they took down the sign that said Apollo, and they replaced it with a sign that said St. Peter. And they kept the same pagan practices, for the most part, that they practiced when it said Apollo. They just put it all in a Christian context and, and veneered Christianity over their paganism. We don't need a patron saint. For, for um, every aspect of our life, a, a saint that we pray to to control that aspect of our life or to bless that aspect of our life, like the city that we live in or our vocation. We have a patron saint of carpenters, a patron saint of sailors, a patron saint of every possible minors of every possible occupation you could conjure and and it's like worshiping demons you're right it's no better than worshiping demons and um yahweh is efficient he'll just destroy them all in one go at the end uh, so some might be roaming around um you know he's not going to deal with them yet until the end in one go and uh, as you say they'll all fit in that volkswagen Oh, absolutely. That, that's um, how many Jews can you fit in a Volkswagen? All of them. <laughs> when Christ returns, all of them. <laughs> Another um, significant fault in Weissman's understanding of Scripture is his refusal to acknowledge that while Adamic men or Israelites can sin, they are always offered an opportunity for repentance and reconciliation to God. Always. As John said in his first epistle, that Christ is the propitiation of our sins and we shouldn't sin, but if we do, we have Christ as our propitiation. That's the opening verses of 1 John chapter 2. But there is another class of men described throughout Scripture who have no avenue for reconciliation and who are consigned from ancient times to the lake of fire, to eternal darkness. They're the people that Jude spoke about, those infiltrators in that passage that I had cited a couple of minutes ago from, from the epistle of Jude, those infiltrators into the assemblies of God who were of old ordained to condemnation. And again, this is why Moses went to great pains to identify all the tribes and also the genealogy of Cain to try and teach, you know, us their connection. So we'd be watchful and mindful. Right. If not, it wouldn't matter. You could just marry anyone. Exactly. Throughout the books of Moses, we, we see who we are and who they are. 
we see who the people are that were actually created by God. That's why we have that Genesis 10 table of nations. Because Israel is not the Adamic race. Israel is only one small branch of the Adamic race through which God had chosen to operate in the world in the future from that time, 3,500, 3,800 years ago, when the entire rest of the Adamic race, as it existed at that time, had already gone off into paganism and race mixing. They were all headed down that path by the time of the call to Abraham. And that's the exact same time that we see the people of Egypt transform themselves from racists in the Old Kingdom, absolute racists where other races weren't even considered to be people, into a multicultural society by 1700 BC. They became an empire and... In their own literature, I have demonstrated this, they became an empire and they had transformed themselves from racism to multiculturalism. And it was the beginning of the end for Egypt. That was already put into play when the Israelites went to Egypt. They were already starting that transformation. So we don't believe in a second God. We believe in a race of men the seed of the serpent, who have been wicked and have acted as Satan collectively for, for the last 7,000 years. And history proves that out. And they've succeeded in bringing down every, every single Adamic nation, and we're the last one on the line, the last stop. Absolutely. There's nowhere to go now. There's no new frontier to expand into, as we have for 5,000 years. Speaking of Genesis chapter 6, Weissman misread that passage, purposely or not, and neglected the fact that giants were in the earth before the sin, which was described in that chapter. That's what it says. There were giants in the earth in those days. They were already there. And after when the race mixing occurred. So the giants were already in the earth. And even to, to um, it's not to Weissman's credit because we all should be able to read, but Weissman isn't the only man that made this mistake. And as far as I can remember, just about everybody in Christian identity non-seed line or two-seed line made that mistake. Can't read Genesis chapter 6 correctly. I'm referring to verse 4. And take it for granted that the giants were only the product of mixing between angels and woman, which isn't true. They weren't angels. They were, they were fallen ones. So they were no longer angels. They were fallen. They were Nephilim. And there were already these Nephilim in the earth. And that's what Genesis 6, 4 really says. They were already there. How did they get there? They must be the fallen angels of Revelation chapter 12. Weissman purposely misread the passage. 
in order to obfuscate and prevent people from making that connection. And it's a very clear connection. It's so clear you must be harebrained or have an agenda in order not to see it. And Weissman clearly had an agenda. Weissman addressed the word Nephilim, but as we pointed out, he purposely left out a portion of Jesenius' definition which supports the veracity of our interpretation. Because even Jesenius admitted that our interpretation was the interpretation which the scholars before him had. But he agreed with the Jews, the Hebrews as he called them. Our interpretation of Nephilim as fallen one, or fallen ones because it's plural, is the oldest and it is the correct interpretation and it makes perfect sense in the context of scripture once you have the words of Christ. Because Paul of Tarsus explained that you can't understand the Old Testament without the words of Christ. He said that very explicitly. I think it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. That's where um, someone who's never read the Bible tries to read Genesis and then, you know, word by word tries to decode it or, you know, explain it. And, and Paul is basically saying, that's impossible. No one can do that. You have to read the whole Bible several times, and especially the words of Christ. Right. I'm sorry. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where Paul explains that. that there's a veil over the face that you can't understand the Old Testament. But in Christ, the veil is taken away. I have a paper at Christogenia. Um, it's titled, it's On Biblical Exegesis is the title. And it explains, I wrote it 10 years ago probably, and it explains that very thing, why you can't understand the Old Testament, and especially Genesis, until you understand the New Testament. You can't. Christ came to reveal things so kept secret from the foundation of the world. I'm sorry. So, so is it possible that by the time of Genesis chapter 6 that there were still some fallen angels still around? Or can we just not know? They're descendants. Why couldn't they have descendants? Yeah. Why couldn't they be the descendants would just of carry Cain? on the same name, Nephilim? They may have been Canaanites. For all we know, we don't know. But they were still around. If you look at the... Um, if you look at the Mesopotamian inscriptions, all of their kings were described in the same way that the fallen angels are described. Gilgamesh, Og of Bashan. What's Og of Bashan? He's one of the giants. He's one of the Rephaim or Anakim that are, that are descended from the Nephilim. So we had descendants of the Nephilim all throughout scripture. We're instructed, we're told that the, um, the Anakim and the Rephaim come from the giants. In, in Numbers chapter 13, verse 33, and there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And giants in that passage is Nephil, 
fallen ones, Nephilim, the same word from Genesis chapter 6, verse 4. So these Nephilim were a race of people. And their origin is told us in Revelation chapter 12. When they fell from, quote unquote, heaven, which isn't necessarily the sky. They didn't fall out of the sky. Heaven is used. Right, and when you start blending species, it's been shown many times that you get anomalies like giganticism and dwarfism. It's very right. common the more you blend all the species together. Absolutely. Not necessarily. Not, I mean, Nephilim is, it, I would never translate it as giants. I would have translated it as fallen ones throughout the scripture. However, it was clear to the translators that in the context of scripture, these later giants like Goliath was identified as one of the Rephaim. And the Rephaim are descended from the Nephilim. And they're related to the Anakim, who were also, many of them were giants. So because not all of these people, but many of them were of very large stature, they were called giants. And the word Nephilim was translated as giants. But I believe that translation is unfortunate. So Weissman purposely misinterpreted Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, so that he could disconnect it from Revelation chapter 12. Weissman also failed to understand that only one law was given to Adam, which was not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So Adam and Eve being punished, there must have been a law that they broke. And their descendants in Noah's time, mixing with these Nephilim, having been punished, there must have been law, a law that they broke in order to be punished. Because Paul himself had taught that if there is no law, sin could not be imputed. And we see that in Genesis. There's only one law given to Adam. Not to touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you touch it, you will die. That's the only law given to Adam. And that law would have naturally extended to Eve and to Adam's descendants. So, when Eve and Adam touched the tree, they fell under the penalty of death, and eventually they died. But Cain murdered his brother, and he was never punished. Why? Because there was no law. There was no law. God couldn't punish him. Hadn't given him the law. Thou shalt not commit murder. Didn't come yet. So he couldn't be punished. That's why Cain wasn't punished. There was no law. But the people in Genesis 6 were punished. So why were they punished? They were all killed. They must have violated the same law. By that we know that the sin of Genesis chapter 3 and the sin of Genesis chapter 6 were one and the same. That's how we know it. Weissman totally failed to understand this. And he was supposed to be an expert on the law. He should have understood this. It's inexcusable not to understand this, but nobody in Christian identity has taught this ever until me. That's the truth. I've never seen it anywhere, ever. I would like to see it, but I never did. Weissman right, contended. And the the non-Anabites, they weren't given this law. 
So that's why they weren't all destroyed. Who? Uh, Non-Anamites, uh, descendants of Cain and Rephaim, etc. Well, well, right. When you read Genesis chapter 6, um, it's the intention of God to punish Adam, to punish the race of Adam on the earth. And he did. He killed them all except Noah and, and his seven other people, right? Noah and his family. But when you get to Genesis chapter 14, you find Rephaim and you find again Nephilim and, and they all survived the flood. Kenites, they all survived the flood. No, it wasn't God's intention to punish them. They weren't given that one law. It didn't apply to them. And in that manner, the, the seed of the serpent remained on the earth. The Kenites and the Rephaim remained on the earth. The Rephaim being the Nephilim, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Weissman also contended with his own versions of our interpretations of Genesis 4.1. But we have shown from many ancient sources that the passage is corrupt. We also cited several early works of Christian literature that support our interpretation to, and, and that serve to prove that the passage must have been corrupt. Where Seth is a replacement for Abel, Weissman tried to claim that Cain had lost his inheritance from murdering Abel. But that is not true anywhere else in Scripture. If Cain were bypassed for that reason, the birthright should have gone to Cain's son, and Abel would not have needed a replacement. On page 28 of Weissman's book, we encountered one paragraph where he lied four times. First, he denied that Cain was listed in Adam's genealogies, was not listed, I'm sorry. He, he denied the fact, yeah, right, I'm confusing myself. First, Weissman denied the fact that Canaan was listed in Adam's genealogies because he was cursed. Weissman said that explicitly. But an entire section of the genealogy of Genesis chapter 10 lists Canaan and his descendants. Then Weissman stated that Esau was not listed in Adam's genealogy because he was rejected. But in Genesis, Esau's descendants are listed in chapter 36, to which the entire chapter is devoted. Then in the genealogy of 1 Chronicles chapter 1, we read, And Abraham, Abraham begat Isaac, the sons of Isaac, Esau and Israel. So even though Esau is rejected, he's being included in the genealogy of Abraham and Isaac, which is the genealogy of Adam, the sons of Isaac, Esau and Israel, the sons of Esau, but they were rejected. Why are they here? Weissman's a liar. Eliphaz, Ruel, and Jeush, and Jalam, and Korah. From there, the descendants of Esau are described all the way down to the rest of the chapter for 21 verses. So Weissman made two plain lies right there. And his third lie in that same paragraph is where he said, Ishmael was Abraham's son, but is not in Abraham's genealogy as he was not of the chosen seed. Is not in Abraham's genealogy. But Ishmael's descendants are listed 
in Genesis chapter 25. Then Ishmael is listed, along with, included with the sons which Abraham had with Keturah in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses 28 to 33. So that is also a plain lie. Then, Weissman's fourth lie in that same paragraph was where he said, cursed or rejected people such as Cain are never included in the true genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. But aside from Canaan, whom Noah cursed in Genesis chapter 9. Now, listen to this. Weissman said, cursed people are never, such as Cain, are never included in the true genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Canaan is cursed by Noah in Genesis chapter 9, and then he is listed along with all the other descendants of Noah in Genesis chapter 10. How could Weissman, he's a blatant liar. That's a bold-faced lie. And there's another example of accursed men, men who were explicitly cursed by God in the genealogies. Another example is the accursed king Jeconiah of Judah. He was cursed by God explicitly, singled out and cursed by God in the book of Jeremiah and in, in the Chronicles of the Ancient Kingdom. And later on, He's mentioned in the genealogy of Christ himself in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11. Weissman made four outright lies in one paragraph in his book. That's inexcusable. How, how did he think he could get away with that? Well, I guess he did get away with it because nobody challenged him on it for 50 freaking years until we did this series. Clifton and that shows you that um, a lot of people just don't read the Bible. They just believe this stuff without going and checking it, unfortunately. Right. And they go along with this crap and they uphold Weissman to be some kind of great CI scholar, some kind of great identity scholar. He's a freaking liar and a deceiver. Clifton is the only man I know who openly challenged Weissman. But Clifton did it at first on cassette tape. That's all he had. That was the only tool that he felt he had available at the time. And I don't think he ever transcribed it, but I do have the recording on his website today. And Clifton wrote little things about Weissman here and there, but never to this extent, right? This is, we've already done probably 200 pages on Weissman on, on addressing this book, at least 150. And, and this is the 19th podcast in this series addressing this book, pulling Weissman apart and exposing one lie after another, after another, after another. All this bastard did was lie. And following those four lies, he lied about the nature of the interchange between Yahweh God and Cain described near the beginning of chapter, Genesis chapter four. I think it's like verses six, seven, eight, nine. Yahweh never accepted Cain as Adam's rightful heir. That's not what he was doing 
in those verses. Rather, Yahweh challenged Cain to do good, knowing that he could not do good, because he told him that if he did not do good, it was because sin lieth at the door. So Yahweh knew Cain wasn't going to do good. Yahweh's God. He knew Cain was going to kill Abel. And he told him when he did it, because he hadn't done it yet, that if he did not do good, it was because sin lieth at the door. Because of the corrupt circumstances of his very birth. Cain proved Yahweh was right when he immediately went off and killed Abel. He immediately went off and killed his brother. So Weissman purposely mischaracterized the nature of the entire exchange. As if Yahweh didn't know that Cain was going to kill Abel. He told him right up front, if you fail, it's because you're a bastard. And Cain went out and failed, proving that a bastard cannot do good. He proved it. Weissman, <laughs> he totally mischaracterized that. Yeah, I think all Jews naturally hate that the origin determines your destiny or that anybody can inherit the punishment for the sins of their ancestors. is kind of built into them because then they know <laughs> that they're doomed. Well, well right. And, and I'm going to take it one step further. If Weissman lied in this book, it's because he's a bastard. He's a bastard. He lied time and again. How do I know? Because he told Michael that we heard from here a few weeks ago that if you cut the tip of his little finger off, he wouldn't have any Jewish blood in him. That's how we know. His lies here prove that Michael, that what he told Michael is true. And that Michael's testimony is true. And these lies are just blatant lies. That they're not even um, discreet or, or cunning. It, it's just a blatant lie when you say something like, oh, cursed people like Cain never show up in the genealogy of Adam, Noah, and Abraham. Wow, really? How about all of these passages we just cited that prove that that's a lie? Weissman lied because he's a bastard. Cain couldn't do good because he was a bastard, because sin lieth at the door. From there, we show that Weissman followed the methods of interpretation used by the Gnostics. He accuses us of that, but he did it. He followed the same methods of interpretation used by the Gnostics and early Greek philosophers while we interpret words according to their true meaning in their historical and scriptural context. We don't say that father is not a father. He does. And, and that's Gnostic. We don't say that um, seed are, are spiritual they're really not offspring. Weissman does that. He's the Gnostic. So Weissman accused us... To always accuse us of what they're doing. Right. That's projection. And Jews are experts at it. Weissman accused us of doing what he insisted on doing all along. 
And then Weissman attempted to prove that the Jews were not the children of God because they did not believe him. But Christ had told them the opposite, that they did not believe him because they were not his sheep in the first place. And we described exactly how that was through all scripture and history. But Weissman had only offered emotional arguments. He didn't have any scriptures to prove it. It's very clear in Romans chapter 9 that Paul, where he said that he prayed only for his kinsmen according to the flesh, because not all Israel are of Israel. That's what Paul said. So what does he mean? If he's caring about his kinsmen according to the flesh, then the people who are not of Israel aren't of Israel because they're not his kinsmen according to the flesh. They're something else. And Paul went on to compare Jacob and Esau. Why did he do that? He did it to explain the first statements. That's why he did it. An idiot can figure that out. And a crafting, cunning bastard can deny it and find ways to try to disprove it, to try to twist Paul's words to mean something else. But Weissman never went to Romans chapter 9. He avoided it. Like you said, he avoided most of the New Testament throughout this book. Weissman appealed to the words of Christ in John chapter 8 to support his assertions. But we interpreted those same verses in harmony with the recorded history of the time to show how those words actually support our assertions and not his. Weissman read John chapter 8 and claimed that the Jews, or more correctly, Judeans, that Jesus was talking to in John 8 were true Israelites. But that is refuted by Christ himself and by John and by Jude and by Peter and by Paul and their refutations and explanations are corroborated by Josephus and by Strabo. Then Weissman used the invalid example of the Canaanite woman. And this is another lie. Weissman insisted, using the example of the Canaanite woman, that no one would ever have been called Abraham's seed, who was of a mixed lineage, particularly by Jesus. And he cited Matthew chapter 15, verses 24 to 26 to support that. But the Canaanite woman never claimed to be Abraham's seed. So why would it ever come up in that conversation? Of course it wouldn't come up. The Canaanite woman didn't make the claim. So Weissman just citing that example is creating a lie. It's also a lie. Because the corrupt seed of Esau continued to bear his name, and the corrupt seed of Judah continued to bear his name. Esau's corrupt seed, Yahweh renamed him Edom. Esau's corrupt half-breed kids continued to be called Edom or Edomites throughout history, down to the time when they all converted to Judaism. That's why they disappeared. Why did Speaking, speaking of the Kenites disappearing, why did the Edomites disappear? Why did the Romans and Josephus recognize a place called Edomia? But after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, 
we never see a place called Edumia again in history. It disappeared. Where did the Edomites go? The Edomians. Why aren't they mentioned in history after the first century? I'm asking a rhetorical question. If you can't answer me, it's because there is no answer, except that today they're Jews. They're Jews. That's the only thing that explains it. Where'd they go? What happened to all these Edomites? Strabo mentioned all these Edomites living in Judea. Where'd they go? Where are the Edomites? Weissman couldn't find them. Weissman wrote a book. Who is Esau Edom? How does he reconcile what he says here, that all these people were pure Israelites, with what he wrote in that book? How does he do that? Where'd the Edomites go? The only answer is that today they're Jews. That's the absolute only answer. Those people Christ was talking to, they were not true Israelites. Weissman lied. He lied and he knew better because he wrote that book, Who Is Esau Edom? I remember reading that book. I don't remember the details. I did have some problems with it when I read it. But overall, I remember thinking it was a good book. It was early in my CI studies, but still I was considering to see line whether or not it was true. So to this day, I don't remember the details of that book. But I do know that a lot of people that are identity Christians at R2C line still like that book. Yeah, it damns Weissman because it shows you that he had a full and complete understanding of it. But when he wrote this book, he chose to deliberately ignore it. Right. Absolutely. He chose to deliberately ignore it and, and come up with anything he could and the kitchen sink in order to try to disprove it. But all of his refutations are lies, every one of them. And we've proven that detail by detail, line by line. Yahweh told the Levites, I will corrupt your seed. And they continued to bear their name. So we have Edomites that were corrupted, but they were still called Edomites. We had Judahites that were corrupted, the sons of Shelah, but they were still considered Judahites. We had Levites that were corrupted. I will corrupt your seed, but it was still continued to be called Levites. That's a prophecy in Malachi chapter 2. So Christ admitted that his adversaries were the seed of Abraham, some of his literal offspring, while denying that Abraham, or God, was their father. The opponents of Christ knew what he meant when they answered and said, we be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. But Weissman ignored that and projected his own idea of what Christ had meant. He ignored the fact that the Pharisees sure as hell knew what Christ had meant, the Pharisees themselves. So Weissman is getting into the middle of a 2,000-year-old conversation, and he's trying to interpret the statement in a manner differently than those who heard it had interpreted it, and Weissman pretends to know better than them. How arrogant is that? And the answer of the Pharisees again proves that Weissman is wrong, that Weissman is lying. 
Weissman tried to insist that the phrase children of the devil was spoken metaphorically of people with bad ideas or who believe lies. And when is that ever used in scripture in any context other than Christ speaking to his enemies? He compared it to other similar terms, children of wrath or children of hell that appear in the New Testament. But we showed that each time those and his other examples appear in scripture, the phrases do indeed refer to a race of people who have no promises from God, who have no opportunity for repentance, and who have no cause for reconciliation because they did not come from him in the first place. So Weissman made his own conclusions, and we elucidated the conclusions which are made by many passages of supporting scriptures. The worst, I think, is next to his basic denial of the truth of Christianity and denial of Christ, which we already explained here. The worst was when Weissman insisted that Israelites alone and not any descendants of Cain were responsible for the deaths of the prophets from the time of Abel. But we refuted that because while Israel holds a national responsibility, it is demonstrable throughout the Old Testament that evil influences within the nation were always personally responsible for the deaths of the prophets wherever they are recorded. The reasons for the sins of the nation hinge on the fact that they allowed the descendants of Cain and Canaan to survive and live among them. The prophets mention that as the cause for such sins as the deaths of the prophets, for example, in Jeremiah chapter 2. So Weissman insisted that Israelites were responsible for the murder of Abel, even though in truth only Cain and his descendants could be held responsible. But Weissman denied that Cain had descendants. Weissman tried to explain the way, explain away the terms by which Christ described his adversaries as serpents and a generation, which means offspring of vipers. Doing that, he overlooked the fact that by those words, Christ was calling their parents vipers and not themselves. That proves that he meant to refer to Cain as the seed of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. He's not calling them alone vipers, but their parents. If he calls their parents vipers, then they are a race of vipers. And if they're a race of vipers, then they are the seed of the serpent. It's very clear. It's very clear to me. I don't know how anybody else could miss it. Where he told them that Cain was their father in John 8, 44, the connection is unmistakable. But Weissman, when Weissman first argued John 8, 44, he ignored the fact that Christ was actually telling them that Cain was their father. And he tried to take for granted that Christ was telling them that the serpent was their father. Then later, Weissman made a new argument 
recognizing that he was telling them that Cain was their father and denied it by claiming that the serpent was the first murderer rather than Cain. And Cain was clearly the first murderer. And Weissman elaborated on that, trying to claim that the serpent was the first murderer. But the scriptures refute that idea. And we cited at least half a dozen scriptures which disprove that. But Weissman didn't have half a dozen scriptures. He only had emotional arguments and never supported them with scripture because he couldn't. So throughout these two chapters, at every turn, we have proven Charles Weissman to be a deceiver and a liar. <laughs> I don't know if you have anything to say to all that. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. He's always trying to um, cover up Cain, Kenites, and Jews, essentially. You can see as you um, go through his arguments that that was his agenda all along, uh, as we said in the intro. Absolutely, and it's, it, it's, it, it's incredible. I, I could understand some people falling for the subtle lies, but for those blatant lies that are so easily refuted by Scripture, claiming that um, Esau wasn't part of Abraham's genealogy when Esau's sons are described and in that description, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau are all included, and it goes on to describe Esau's descendants for 21 generations. Yeah, that's Abraham's genealogy. Even if they're bastards, it's still descended from Abraham. Why did the scripture do that? The scripture did that to show us that those descendants of Esau were always right there. And in Ezekiel chapter 35, that there's, a, um, there's an admonition, and we have to understand the context of Ezekiel chapter 35. The Edomites had allied themselves with the Babylonians against Judah. The tribes of Israel were already taken into captivity by the Assyrians over 100 years before. And when the Babylonians came and destroyed what was left of Judah and Jerusalem, the Edomites allied with them. And there are several witnesses for that in Scripture, in the Psalms of the Asaph and in First Esdras. It, it's detailed. So the Jews had to get rid of First Esdras, right? Well, well they tried. The Edomites were allied with the Babylonians and had their sights set on occupying that land. So during the, the um, period of the fall, the, the decline and fall of Babylon, and the beginnings of the Persian period, the Edomites moved up into Judah and Israel and occupied much of Judah and Israel. And this is prophesied in Ezekiel, where it says, and it's talking to Esau in the guise of Mount Seir. And it says, because thou hast said, these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess it, whereas the Lord was there. So that reflects the fact 
that the Edomites had moved up from the ancient land of Edom and Mount Seir into Judah and Israel. These two nations and these two countries where Yahweh was formerly. The Edomites had occupied that land and in the Persian period and into the Hellenistic period, that became known as Edomia, what was formerly um, the southern parts and, and most of the southern portions of the land of Israel and the land of Judah. So Josephus describes later on how the people that returned, the remnant that returned to Jerusalem, went out and conquered all those Edomites from about 129 BC and forced them to convert to Judaism. And Strabo, Strabo of Cappadocia, the famous Greek geographer, explains how that same thing happened in different terms. He said the Nabataeans, who were Ishmaelites, kicked the Edomites out and they moved to the north into Judea. That's what Strabo said. And then he said that the Edomites and the Judeans were living all mixed together, practicing the same laws and customs. Book 16 of Strabo's geography. That's why Edomia disappeared, because they became Jews. From that point on, just as Josephus says, they were known as Jews. They were known as Judeans, and later in history, that became contracted into the word that we know as Jews. And Weissman would deny all this, and it's very clear, historically, and in the New Testament, that these people Christ was talking to were not true Israelites. They were Edomites. The only other yeah, alternative, what alternative the did they have? What else could they call themselves? I mean, they wouldn't want to call themselves uh, Edomites. Uh, all they could do is cling on to the Jews or Judeans. It was their only, you know, only possibility to protect themselves. Right. And that's for the same reason before the Hellenistic period that the Kenites obviously didn't want to really be known as Kenites. So they started to be called after the other nations that they infiltrated and, and blended themselves in with. Why would they want to be called Kenites? Or why would the Canaanites still want to be called Canaanites? By the Hellenistic period, the word Canaanite virtually disappeared. It's not found in any Greek writing. The Greeks never called them Canaanites. They called them Syrians or by other identifications elsewhere in other regions. But for the most part, the Canaanites were now called Syrians. And we see that in the gospel, where, where this woman is called a, a Syrian in, in, in the gospel of Mark. But in Matthew, she's identified as a Canaanite by race. But the truth is that that word Canaanite wasn't used by the Greeks. So thankfully, Matthew must have understood that and must have wanted to relate to us, to the readers of his gospel, what she really was, a Canaanite. Because people change their names. And throughout the Hellenistic period, the word Canaanite does not appear in the secular or pagan Greek literature. It's only found in the Septuagint. And sometimes in the Septuagint, it was wrongly 
translated to Phoenician. And I say that because the original Phoenicians were Israelites. But the Israelites were deported. Some of them were stragglers that stayed behind. There were pieces of them here and there. But for the most part, the Israelites were deported. And the Canaanites were left behind. Their slaves were left behind. Okay, I think that's a good place to end our discussion of this chapter. And we've gone over two hours, but that's all right. Yep. We can finally move on to the next chapter, right? Yeah, right. And and, and I don't know if we're going to um, discuss these coming chapters to the same degree of detail. I don't think we have to. But chapters three and four, we it, it's uh, all of the true scriptural arguments are in those chapters. And we had to address them in detail. We couldn't let any part of them slip by so that the people that insist on clinging to Weissman can never tell us, oh, you can't answer this. Oh, you can't answer that. Because we answered everything. Every one of his arguments is totally discredited, as far as I'm concerned, after these 19 portions of, of these presentations. So, yeah, well, we can move on to Chapter 5, finally. But the I, I think that the arguments will become more general, but that's okay. Yeah, that's fine, because, you know, it's just going to be, uh, was it witchcraft, masonry, and, and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, and, and we don't really need to get into all that in detail. We have our biblical support for everything that we say. Is Ali. Okay, well, thank you for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, not the God of all these evil bastards. Thanks, Bill. And and the Zuzims, the the roaming <laughs> yeah. creatures, the the um, gypsies and the Jews, the modern and gypsies. Vagabonds. And vagabonds. Yes. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.